This morning we'll just take one verse from our scripture text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Brother Darrell read, of course, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. This section is referred to as the Beatitudes. These are attributes or characteristics that Christ says every child of God needs to possess. But this morning we'll consider this seventh attribute or beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We'd all like to be called children of God. We'd like to be recognized as children of God. There's a way we can do that. We must be peacemakers. I think something we could all agree on is that this world is in desperate need of peace. You can open a newspaper or turn on a news station and very quickly we realize that this world is in turmoil. Even if you don't watch the news or read the newspaper, just interacting with people and seeing people every day, you realize that the world is in desperate need of peace. Well, the Lord says here, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What is a peacemaker? Well, in 1873, Colt came out with a single-action army revolver that became a favorite of lawmen and outlaws alike, and it was called a peacemaker. Somehow I don't think that's what the Lord is talking about here when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. He's not referring to a firearm. We know that. A peacemaker is somebody who makes peace. Well... To become a peacemaker, we have to understand what real peace is. You know, Webster's gives us some definitions of peace. Peace can be an agreement to end a war. You've heard of peace treaties that have been signed and usually broken within just a few days afterwards, but it can be an agreement to end a war. Peace can be a period of time when there is no fighting a state of tranquility or quiet freedom from disquieting thoughts or oppressive thoughts or emotions. These are definitions of peace, but you recognize very quickly that all of these are temporary things. These things won't last. These is not lasting peace. This is the kind of peace that uh, maybe the world understands peace to be. But Jesus tells us about two different kinds of peace. He tells us about the kind he gives, and he tells us about the kind that the world gives. John fourteen twenty seven. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So we see there's two kinds of peace, the kind that the world offers and the kind that Jesus offers. And Jesus lets us know they're not the same thing. How does the world give peace? Well, if you went to a doctor and you were dealing with anxiety, he might prescribe a medicine or a medication that might help with anxiety. You know, I was just curious. I looked up some of the side effects from some of these medications And it lists a whole host of different issues that are created. So you 
treat one symptom to create a bunch of other things that could cause anxiety. Somebody might say, well, take a trip, go to Hawaii, get get away from it all, go to a place where nothing bothers you, change your circumstances. Well, we know all of these things are temporary solutions. That kind of peace can only be felt when there's an absence of conflict. And how long does that last? So we can see that the peace the world offers is temporary and fleeting. It doesn't last. True peace is not an escape from reality. What kind of peace does Christ give or offer us? Well, it tells us in the Word of God that it's perfect peace. It's a peace that passes all understanding. It says in Philippians 4.7, it's the peace of God that passeth all understanding and will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And there's the key right there. Through Christ Jesus, we can have a perfect peace. It has nothing to do with our circumstances or our surroundings. You could be in the midst of a storm, yet if you know Jesus Christ, you can have that perfect peace down in your heart. That peace is permanent. It can be permanent. Isaiah 26.3 says, He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth in thee. That doesn't have to be a fleeting peace. It says the Lord will keep you in perfect peace if you keep your mind on the Lord. And again, there's the key, because he trusteth in thee. So we know the peace that Jesus offers is unchanging. It's permanent. It doesn't fade. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. Well, how do we get this kind of peace? Well, we know only Christ can give this kind of peace. The world can't give it. Isaiah 48.22 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. You know, how could there be? Any person who's living outside of Christ and apart from Christ is literally living under a death sentence. It says that God is angry with the wicked every day. So when a person is living under that sentence of spiritual death, and we know the wages of sin is death, the end of a sinful life is eternal damnation, and God is angry with the wicked every day. To live under that kind of pressure, you couldn't have any real lasting peace. There be maybe moments of satisfaction, but everyone has to sleep at some point. The world can't give us that peace. Only Christ can. Romans 8, 6 says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We experience that peace when we surrender to the Lord, when we meet that Prince of Peace. And once we do that, then we're able to be true peacemakers. You know, being a peacemaker is proactive. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it speaks of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word endeavor means to strive, to achieve, or to exert. So we see there's some effort involved in being a peacemaker. Romans 12.18 says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. There may be times when peace is impossible, at least with the opposing party. Maybe 
there are people you've tried to make amends with or you've tried to right or wrong and they refuse to forgive. Well, that's between them and the Lord. They're going to have to deal with that attitude of unforgiveness. But even in the midst of that, when we've done all we can do, we can have perfect peace knowing that we've done our part. We can have a conscience void of offense between God and man. But it certainly takes effort to be a peacemaker. Psalm 34, verse 14 says, Seek peace and pursue it. You know, to pursue something means to chase after it, to go after it. When you're pursuing a career, you do things, you study, you work hard, you go to college, you apply yourself, you pursue after that career to achieve those goals. In the same sense, we're to pursue peace. To be a peacemaker means to go after it, not to run from it, but to go after it, to seek peace and pursue it. Being a peacemaker is not the same as being a peacekeeper. It's a big difference. Being a peacemaker is not passivity. It's not being passive. Peace is not appeasement. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean we will always avoid conflict. Sometimes being a peacemaker means speaking up when it would be easier to remain silent. You know, when our faith is challenged or when we're prompted to speak up or say a word for the Lord or take a stand, we need to do that. To remain silent is not being a peacemaker. It's being a peace faker. You can pretend everything's okay and not say anything, but that's not the same as being a peacemaker. It's not being passive. You know, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was not afraid to confront sin when he needed to confront it. Of course, we know the Bible says that he always spoke the truth in love. It's one thing we need to keep in mind. But I thought about the different times when Jesus, it even says in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And you might wonder, well, that that almost would seem like a contradiction here. This is the Prince of Peace, and he tells us to be peacemakers, yet he says he comes to bring a sword. What exactly did he mean by that? Well, I found a commentary that actually explained that very well. It says, when Jesus said that he came to bring a sword and not peace, he meant that this would be the effect of his coming not that it was the purpose of his coming. The metaphor of the sword describes how unbelievers may respond to the gospel, but not how we communicate it. As children of God, our purpose is to represent the Prince of Peace regardless of the effect it has. Being a peacemaker is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone who the Lord may lay on our hearts. It's not our responsibility as to how they may respond. It may even cause strife at times, but in an effort to be a peacemaker, to help maintain that permanent peace, we must share the gospel with others. Jesus, we see different accounts, different times when the Lord, he spoke the truth and he did it in love. I think about that account where he met that woman at the well there in the book of John. And this woman was, uh, she was burdened by sin. She was entrenched in sin. She had 
sin in her life. And as Jesus was there speaking to her, and he began to tell her about this living water. And she began to be curious. And she asked him, how can I have this living water? Well, this is where Jesus got personal with her. He realized he had to confront some things in her life that would keep her from having that living water. So out of love and concern for her soul, he he told her, go call your husband and have him come out and hear what I have to say. And she responded by saying, I don't have a husband. And that's when the Lord confronted her with the truth. He said, and that you say, that's true. He says, the man you're with now, is it your husband? You've had five husbands. And the man that you're with now, is it your husband? She could have responded in a lot of different ways to that. She could have been offended. She could have been hurt. She could have been shamed. But Jesus loved her too much to not speak the truth to her. Rather than appease her and pretend everything was fine, he knew there was something in her life that was keeping her from that living water. So out of love, he confronted her with that thing. And, of course, we know it had its desired effect. She went back to her town and she told everybody there, she said, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Isn't this the Christ? And so many came out based on her testimony and it said many heard the Lord and many believed and were saved. And it was a result of that one encounter with Christ. But Jesus, as a peacemaker, he spoke the truth to her. Even though it may have been hard for her to hear, he was willing to do it. You know, Jesus was met with different results at times. We think again of the rich young ruler. We've heard a lot about him lately. It says this man came running to Christ, wondering what must I do to have eternal life? He didn't have peace in his heart. And he asked an honest question. So we know Jesus, it says in one scripture, says Jesus loving this man, beholding him, loving him, he told him what he needed to do. He mentioned a lot of things this man was doing right, but he knew there was an idol in this man's life that would keep him from the kingdom of heaven. So out of love and concern, he told him what it was. He said, go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. That man could have experienced perfect peace that day, but it said he went away sorrowful. It was too hard for him to hear, but nonetheless... Jesus could have appeased him and pretended everything was fine, but he loved him too much to do that, so he told him the truth. I thought of one other example of the woman taken in adultery. Again, in the book of John, it tells about uh, the scribes and Pharisees. They caught this woman in the very act, and they drug her before the Lord, and uh, not in any desire to see justice served, but they wanted to try to entrap Christ. And so they drug this poor woman before the Lord in all her humility and her shame. And, of course, they knew that the law said she should be stoned, so they began to press Jesus about what should be done. And you read Christ's response. It said he didn't even answer him a word. He just wrote down and began to scribble in the dirt there. And as they continued to press the issue, he just stood up and he said, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. I tell you, that had an effect. So those men, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they began to kind of slink and slither away there. They felt conviction. Well, that woman remained there. She was also confronted with her sin. Jesus didn't endorse or sanction her sin. He confronted her with it, but then he told her, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So the Lord 
released her from that condemnation. But you know, those same men could have had that same hope in their heart that day if they would remain there and they had, were willing to confess their sin, but they, they slithered off in their guilt and their shame. Jesus wasn't trying to appease them. He was trying to save them. That's what the Lord wants to do. The Lord always speaks the truth in love, but sometimes being a peacemaker means we may have to confront things that we would rather avoid. But again, if the Lord lays it on our heart to say something, and we need to make sure it's, it's the Lord that's prompting us, but we want to speak the truth in love. So being a peacemaker isn't the same as being a peacekeeper or an appeaser. The Word of God tells us too that being a peacemaker requires submission. And again, I'm not talking about appeasement. We don't submit to the world and the things that are contrary to the Word of God when it comes to the doctrines and the fundamentals. We stand firm, but God tells us to submit to God. God has an authority structure that we must submit to in order to have peace. You know, that structure is there to establish order, and through order we know we experience peace. So God gives us an authority structure to follow if we want peace. First thing again in James 4, 7, it tells us submit to God. So that's the first thing we do. We need to submit our lives to God, to Christ. It tells us in Hebrews 13, verse 17, it says submit to those in authority over you. And again, as long as those authorities aren't telling you to do something contrary to the Word of God, or they're telling you to compromise your testimony in any way, there are cases when civil disobedience is acceptable when we obey God rather than men, but when we can, we're supposed to submit to those in authority over us. You know, God has an authority structure for the home. You know, a home used to be a place... That was thought of as a sanctuary, a place of peace, a refuge that people could go to and children could go to to find a reprieve from the world. Tragically, that's changed in our culture today. Many times now, the home is a place of turmoil and strife, but God never designed it to be that way. You know, God has an authority structure for the home. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, we see this structure in place. Ephesians 5, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, before I go any farther, I think I need to say a few things here. This is probably one of the most abused and misused scriptures in all the Bible. There's a lot of men who love to quote this verse to their wives. They may not have any other portion of verses memorized, but they know this one. They can follow their wife around, quoting it all kinds of times during the day and wondering why it's not working. Well, there's some instructions for the husband. Matter of fact, in that fifth chapter, the responsibility for peace and security in that home largely rests on the husband's shoulders and the man's responsibility. The wife has a part, but the husband certainly has a very large responsibility in maintaining peace. It tells us, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How did Christ love the church? 
It was sacrificial and selfless. Everything Jesus did was for the benefit and the well-being of the church. And if husbands love their wives that way, if their best intentions were always at the front of our hearts, and if our desire was to strengthen them and encourage them and build them up and to love them sacrificially and selflessly, I don't think a wife would have a hard time submitting to a husband like that. But that's part of God's authority structure. Tells us children, children need to submit to the authority of the parents. There's different scriptures. It says, honor your father and mother in the Lord. And one portion of scripture says, this is the one commandment with promise. That promise is long life to those children who will honor and obey their parents. But as parents, we can make that easy for our children or we can make it hard. It says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up and them nurture and admonition of the Lord. So it's how we train our children. If we do it as Christ treated the church and as we love them the way the Word of God instructs us to, they'll not have a hard time obeying. You know, a father can lead his family or he can drive his family. We'll get much different results if we lead them and do things according to God's Word so we know there is a authority structure in God's Word regarding the home. When it's followed, the result will be peace in the home. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, it speaks about the relationship between employers and employees. It refers to them as masters and servants, but in this portion of Scripture... It's not talking about slavery or anything like that. It's talking about a relationship between an employer and an employee. It says, servants, obey your masters. Employees, obey your employers. If you've agreed to work for a certain wage and you've agreed to do certain things, do what the boss says. Even if you may think there's an easier way of doing it, just do what he says. Obey those that are paying your wage. Unless, of course, they ask you to compromise or do something dishonest. So we know, servants, obey your masters. This will make for a much more peaceful workplace. It also talks about masters and how they should treat their servants or how employers shouldn't treat their employees. It says, Forbear threatening because your master is in heaven. So if you're the boss, how are you treating your employees? Are you treating them with kindness and respect? Are you reasonable? Are you treating them the way you would want to be treated? These are all principles in God's word, but if we follow the authority structure in God's word, we'll have peace in the home, peace on the job. You know, when we do these things, we will have peace. It tells us when we submit to God's authority structure, we will have peace in our homes, peace in the church, peace in the workplace, and ultimately we can have peace in our souls. It tells us when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's a wonderful promise. And again, it says when a man's ways please the Lord, then his enemies will be at peace with him. It's not accomplished through appeasement. It's accomplished through pleasing the Lord first, and then God will even have our enemies be at peace with us. 
tells us, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And again, says, He will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusteth in thee. It also tells us to submit one to another. And again, that's not appeasement or giving in on things that are important, doctrinal things, fundamental things, foundational things. But you know, often, if we're not careful, we can forget about the fundamentals and the essentials and we can focus on the incidentals. Maybe we can dig in where it really doesn't make any difference. You know, if it's a matter of opinion or something that really uh, isn't very important at all or has no significance, we need to be willing at times to, to submit to others for the sake of peace. You know, if you come to church and you find a visitor sitting in your seat, well, let them sit there. Don't ask them to move. You know, submit. There's plenty of seats, always seats available in the front if you're ever worried about a place to sit. We don't want to get hung up. We don't want to major in the minors. If there's areas where we know we can submit for the sake of keeping peace, we need to do that. And God will bless us for it. You know, if you don't have peace in your heart this morning, you can. God has promised us this perfect peace. He's the Prince of Peace. And you know, the Lord paid a tremendous price for us to have this peace. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it tells us, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. Jesus suffered the penalty for our sins so we could be forgiven and we could have peace. If you don't have that peace this morning, the Lord, the Prince of Peace, He extends an invitation to you today. It just takes one honest prayer from the depth of your heart. Surrender your life to Christ. Confess your sins to the Lord. You'll control of your life to the Lord. Submit to Him today, and God will give you that peace down in your heart, that peace that passes all understanding. It's available today. It can be yours. May God bless you. Let's sing 157. These altars are open.